This is episode 287 of the Beyond the Food Show, and today we're going to talk about feeling not good enough, and my guest expert today, Vanessa Preston, is going to walk us through the path back to feeling good enough. Stay tuned. Welcome to the Going Beyond the Food Show. I'm Stephanie Dozier, clinical nutritionist and creator of the Going Beyond the Food Method. And after a 25-year dieting career that started at the age of 12, I decided to say hell no to diet culture and undiet my life. It is now my mission to help women undiet their life. If you're new to our podcast, be sure to grab our free podcast roadmap at stephaniedoze.com forward slash roadmap. Ready, sisters? Let's do this. Welcome back, my sisters. And today we're talking about a story. We're talking about something that's very near and dear to my heart. And I know it's very common with a lot of you listening to this podcast is this belief and feeling that we are not good enough. And often the control on food, the control on our body is the tool that we use in order to create what we hope is a feeling of good enough. And we learned that at a very young age. We learned that as a woman, our beauty, the size of our body, our ability to quote, eat healthy, will make us feel more worthy, will make us more valuable in this society that's overwhelmed with diet culture. That's what diet culture is, right? It's a system of belief that says that the size of your body and your health status, therefore your ability to control food, makes you feel more valuable. So, I know for me, that was the story that motivated the 25 years of my career in dieting was this deep, deep, deep feeling of not good enough and a belief that I wasn't good enough. And that's actually how I came to do what I do. But to really get over that piece of believing that I was an amazing person, right? It really took that last layer that I I did, which is the mindset work, right? And this is what I teach now inside of Undieting Your Life is that, yeah, we can make peace with food, we can make peace with our body. But if we don't rewire the way that we think, these old beliefs will continue to operate other facets of our life beyond the food. So today I brought a friend, a woman that I'm fortunate to call a friend and also a colleague, Vanessa Preston. Vanessa is a mental health social worker, psychotherapist and nutritionist. She recently created a program, her dream program called Body and Food Freedom Project. And obviously in her background of being a psychotherapist and a mental health counselor, she talks a lot about that mindset piece and that feeling not good enough because that's her story as well. She's a recent graduate from our non-diet mentorship program. So you are going to benefit greatly from 
this interview and I'm just going to move over to the interview. I'm going to move over to let Vanessa guide us back to feeling good enough. And maybe, just maybe, you too can believe that you are an amazing person. Over to Vanessa's interview. Welcome to the show, Vanessa. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be talking about this with you today. So, so people can get to know you more, how this feeling not good enough came into your life. Well, me and the not good enough voice, we've been friends for a long time. (laughs) um, I think, you know, I definitely have my own body image story and my own food story. And um, it's definitely showed up in that area for me. And I also think my career. So I, you know, I work as a therapist and it's definitely showed up um, in my career that not good enough and even things, which I'm sure we'll talk more about, but imposter syndrome, that's definitely been something that I've experienced. And it's so funny because I was reflecting on the imposter syndrome and I thought I would, I I would always have this story that, if I just finish this degree, or if I just finish this certification, or once I hit 10 years experience, you know, there was always this story that then I'll feel enough, or then I'll feel like, you know, this imposter syndrome will go away. Um, And I've just realized it's more learning to coexist with it and relate to it in a different way. So when did you have this moment of awareness, Vanessa, like, I have this imposter syndrome. I'm, you call them the not good enough voice. I have this not good enough voice, but really I'm good enough. Like, is there a moment where this awareness became real for you? Like concrete, like I'm good enough as I am now. Yes. There's two experiences that really was the shift for me around this. And one is I remember when I, you know, I've become really passionate about teaching body image and intuitive eating. And I thought I need a nutrition qualification to do this. And so I signed up to complete the nutrition course and I did. And unfortunately it was absolutely entrenched in diet culture. And it was um, a pretty painful experience to get that completed And I remember through that really having this light bulb moment that this is not, this wasn't necessary. And I think then moving into your mentorship program where we really unpacked sort of what, what was going on for us emotionally, what's going on in our headspace. And I think I realized then that this is not about a piece of paper. This is not about number of years of experience. This is about where I've attached my worth. Mm. Um, and really doing the work to untangle that. So for people listening now that I've been attracted to the title, feeling not good enough, where does that come from? Like if we were to unpack it for them, they haven't had this realization. They're just like, yeah, I feel not good enough. I have no idea why. And I don't know what to do about it. Can you unpack it a little bit for them? What it is, where it comes from? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a big question. I get it. Yeah. But I I tend to think in systems. 
And so I think really early on in childhood with our family systems is often where this starts and in our attachment with our parents. And then I think sort of the next layer is, you know, our experiences that we had at school, where did we go to schools that demanded a really high level of achievement? Did we experience lots of bullying? Um, And then I think sort of the next layer of that being our community and our culture. And so to some degree, I think having this not good enough voice is unfortunately pretty normal, um, given the society and culture we live in, especially as women. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I think there's diff- there's sort of layers of systems that really influence this this not good enough voice. And why do you call them voice? Because a lot of women will say when they begin their journey of undieting their life, they're like, I'm not good enough. They don't call them voice. They're like, I'm not good enough. Like, what's the difference between or why do you call it voices versus I'm not good enough? I think one one thing is I think we should talk about shame for a second. For and, you know, the shame is really what underpins this not good enough voice. And, you know, I really like Brene Brown's definition of shame, which is an intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed as humans. There's something innately wrong with us. And therefore, we're unworthy of love and belonging. And so, you know, it's so interesting in my clinical practice when I'm working with a client and they often don't realize that the emotion and experience underpinning this is shame. And so the reason I say the voice is because when we're talking about shame, we want to externalize it. So it is, that is not us. That, that thought process, that voice is not us. This is a voice we've been conditioned to have by, like I said, layers of different systems in our life and different systems of influences. Um, And so I really like the idea of, like I said, externalizing that of that doesn't belong to me. That doesn't define me. That does, that doesn't have to be true. That's brilliant. I never thought about it this way, but by naming it a voice and understanding comes from something in our past we can literally say like, it's the voice of my dad or my mom or my teacher. Like it's not intrinsically who I am. It's just a voice that keeps spinning in my head and judging me. And I, and I got to think it was me, but in fact, it's just a voice. Is that what you're saying? Yes. Yes. And that's brilliant. Yes. And the majority of subconscious programming, right? So the majority of what sort of sets our thought process programming, I guess, happens between zero and seven. And so often in therapy, some people often have that realization of exactly what you just said. You know, when we really externalize the voice and look at it, we go, that really sounds like my mom. That's the stuff my mom said to me growing up. Or, wow, that's the voice of the bullies that ridiculed me for years when I was growing up. And so, yeah, it's it can be quite empowering to recognize this does not belong to me. This has been conditioned to be there. And it creates that distance. You can still have the thought, oh, I'm not good enough but you're able to say it's not me. It's just my brain repeating an old 
programming. Yes. And I, you know, the idea of actually observing that thought or that that. story. And so, yes, externalizing it. Um, A good way to externalize it is using your imagination a little bit. So it might be that you're sitting in a movie theater Mm -hmm. and you're seeing on the screen the thought, I'm not good enough, you know, or some version of that. I'm not qualified enough. You know, I'm not pretty enough when it comes to our bodies. I'm not thin enough. You know, whatever the thought is, we we picture that we're safely sitting back right? The back row of a cinema and we're seeing it sort of scroll past on the screen. And it does give us that time to really observe. Like I said, this, this isn't necessarily my belief and this has been influenced to be there. And is this helpful? And it's usually not true. I have two places I want to go with this. So let's talk about the intersection So we've just unpacked what is not good enough voices. So everybody, we're calling this voice go forward. But let's talk about it in the context of diet culture and body image. Like what's the intersection or how do you see it intersect in your practice or in your life or with your clients? I definitely think, again, if I think of like systems of influence, diet culture is a huge one the cultural messages we receive around what it means to be beautiful or what it means to be healthy, you know, this obsession with thinness. And we are bombarded by messages from a really, really early age about all of this, you know, the next fad diet, the, you know, what we're supposed to look like. And that absolutely creeps into this internal dialogue, this not good enough voice, and it absolutely contributes to it. And, um, I know I'm not, I won't go too deep into this part of it, but I really think that, you know, if we think about the way that, you know, when the brain is faced with shame, which again, remember that not good enough voice, that feeling that we're defective in some way, when the brain is faced with that, it actually responds like it would to a physical threat and it activates the, that fight, flight, freeze response. Which is why when, you know, we are in a place of shame and we have that tape playing of, I'm, you know, a version of I'm not worthy or good enough. This is why there is this um, tendency to isolate and to, to judge ourselves and to do things in secrecy. And so if I think about body image, right, how much do we see that show up? We see the body shame show up. And then it stops us, it isolates us, it disconnects us. And whether it's with our children or our partners or our careers, right? Like we, we won't show up as our full, mm. authentic, vulnerable selves because we are in that shutdown place. Um, so that is, that's, the, that's the tricky thing with the not good enough voice and that shame is it needs secrecy and isolation to grow. And, you know, I think of all the times in my own body image journey where that happened, there was the body shame that creeped in. And then I would cancel a a catch up with a friend because I felt embarrassed and ashamed, or, you know, I would be sitting on the beach or beside the pool on a really beautiful day. And I would be pretending that I didn't want to be in the water you know, that is how shame shows up for us and this not good enough voice. And it has a, it spreads through our life. 
right? It's, it's, we think it's just with the pool, but in fact, you just said it, it's with your career. It's with your sexuality. It shows up in so many spheres of our life. Yes. The, the amount of women I see where, you know, how you said sexuality, who will disengage from intimacy with their partners because of shame and because of this not good enough voice. And so that's, that is the very essence of shame is it convinces us that we're not worthy of connection. And something I really learned in your mentorship program is this does have a ripple effect, like Mm. you said, and there I had dreamed about running the group program that I run. I had dreamed about that. I remember dreaming about that up to five or six years ago. I had the idea in my head, but I had this tape of not good enough. I had this story of I needed another qualification. Um, the, the ripple effect of diet culture had really creeped into all these corners of my life where I hadn't even realized And so I wouldn't show up on social media. You know, I wouldn't do like what we're doing now, a podcast. I wouldn't create a video. I wouldn't run a a group. Um, And so I think the more work people start to do to unpack their own version of not good enough voice and I'm not worthy and there's something innately wrong with me, the more that we unpack that, like I said, it's it's, it's work, but it is this like freeing process of going, I am good enough and worthy as I am right now in this body. Now, not when I lose 10 pounds or kilos, um, not when I get rid of something, my body and my mind are good enough now. Mm. One more thing I want to talk about with thy culture is this phenomenon that for people at the beginning of their journey, they're like, but it's true. Like, it's so normal. Like, for people just coming into the non-diet world, they're like, but it's like, I talk about it with my girlfriend. I see it on TV. Like, I'm too big. Like, it's a fact. It's so normal that we believe it to be true. How do we deal with that? Or what are your thoughts on that? Well, I think it's such a a sad state of affairs that we have what I think it's 91% of women who struggle with body image. That tells you something. It's not that we are all just messed up human beings. 91%, that tells you that this is coming from a wider culture. And I think I read that we are at this stage, we're exposed to six to 10,000 advertisements per day um, with the addition of social media over, you know, fairly recent years. And so, you know, I think it is, you know, women that are saying, but it's true, but it's true. I would say, um, I think it's pretty normal to start this journey, believing it's true. Um, So, you know, one thing that I talk a lot about in my group work and with my clients is compassion. And so when you feel too big, when you feel there's something wrong with your body, when you're feeling not good enough in all these areas of your life, one tool while you're trying to work through the thought process of this is true, um, I think having a sense of curiosity and having a sense of compassion is a really nice place to start, right? Because we can sort of push pause and we can go, 
it's not necessarily that I need to believe this is all BS right now, but I can go, can I at least be curious about where did this thought come from? Where did this belief that I have to be thin to be healthy, where did that come from? You know, and really creating some space to sit with the curiosity of it. And curiosity and compassion to me are like best mates. They are, it is such a good practice to use the two. And so the compassion would come in of while I'm exploring this and while I'm staying curious um, and while I'm exploring my thought process, I'm going to treat myself with kindness and I'm going to, you know, again, be compassionate to myself. And one question that's really helpful when we're trying to reach a, a place of compassion is how would I treat my child or my best friend right now? Mm. And in my clinical practice, I will often, I often use humor. It's such a good way to sort of break the ice. And so I will actually use an example from their lives. So I might say, okay, so if, if your best friend called and said to you, I haven't gotten anything done today. I'm eating chocolate. I'm under a warm blanket. I feel so sad and stressed out from this pandemic. And I'm just not feeling good about myself. Would your response be, you're useless. You need to get up off the couch. You're bad. You need to put the chocolate down, right? There is no way we would respond to our friends or our kids in that way. And so thinking through it a little bit of, well, okay, if, if my best friend was in this situation, how would I meet her with a softer, kinder, compassionate sort of approach? So it's such an important practice. I'd love to get your professional opinion on that. There's a lot of people when we say these things, like when we teach or when we talk about these things, they're like, well, but that's just an excuse, right? There, there are some reason the word compassion is linked with weakness and making an excuse. How do you respond to that? Yeah, I, I think people get confused with the concept of self-compassion and self-pity. Please unpack. And there is a big, the, the big key difference between self-compassion and self-pity is in self-compassion, a main component of that is remembering that other people struggle too. So it's sort of maintaining part of the human condition is to struggle sometimes. So I can hold that other people are struggling but I can also still validate that I'm going through a hard time right now. And so in self-pity, what gets lost is we forget that other people are going through hardships too. You know, we've all been around and we've probably all experienced self-pity at some stage in our lives and been around it of poor me, no one understands. I, you know, I have it just the hardest of anybody. And so moving from a place of self-pity to compassion is other people are going through hardships too, but that does not mean that my struggles aren't valid and it doesn't mean I have to compare. And so, you know, I think too, what the research shows with, with self-compassion is when we practice self-compassion, we're more likely to take responsibility for our behaviors. Yeah. Because that's a misconception, right? When we accept 
that we're struggling, that means we're going to begin, we're going to fall into this big puddle of doing nothing about it, right? We're going to become complacent. That's the big fear of people behind self-compassion. Yep. And I think knowing, you know, what I just said about the research actually shows the opposite. And if I think about what is the alternative to self-compassion, well, it's self-criticism, it's self-judgment. And again, it's that place of shame. And remember what I said earlier, that has that shutdown response. So anybody who thinks that criticizing themselves, that bullying themselves, that shaming themselves, that repeating that they're not good enough is somehow going to motivate change, it doesn't. And that is what we know from the research too. Shame is not a good motivator for change. Here's what an observation that I, I'm not a, like everybody know, I'm a, I'm a nutritionist and I am a coach, but I'm no, I'm not a therapist, but here's my observation. I'm curious to see what you think of that. What I have observed in coaching people is that when they began, people began, began on dieting their life, they interact with themselves in the same way their parent interacted with them. So whatever model of education or behavioral learning, if it was punishment, if it was judgment and criticism, that's how people interact with themselves. Is that something that makes sense in your field as well? Absolutely. Like the attachment with our main caregivers, right? Usually mom and dad, it teaches us how to relate to ourselves and how to relate to the world. And so if we're in an environment that's chaotic or that's driven by criticism or that's driven by shame, then it does become part of this voice and part of our internal dialogue. And we think that's just the way things are done. And this is the beauty of programs like what you run and going to therapy is you can unpack some of that and there is another way. Um, And the thing that can be tricky with this is if what we grew up with, because it is familiar, it feels safe. (laughs) And so starting to, you know, for for some people practicing self-compassion, for example, might feel unsafe for a little while. Um, because they've had this childhood experience of that's not familiar to me. And our brains, as you know very well, mm-hmm. our brains freak out when something doesn't feel familiar. Let's talk about tools. So we kind of understand better what the not good enough voices are, where they come from, how they show up. How do we get ourselves, quote, out of this? Like, what is your solution to this or your approach? Well, so one of the things that I've created is a free guide. So you can get it on my website and you can get it on um, the link in the bio on my Instagram, where it's a free guide for managing this not good enough voice. And it sort of goes in a little bit more into what we've talked about today. Um, So that's definitely a good resource. But I think some of the tools are one is what we talked about being able to identify and, and, and externalize that voice of shame, that not good enough voice. And for some people it can help to name it. So, you know, I've heard all kinds of silly names for naming that voice or that shame. So the shame spiral, the shame cycle, the shame tornado, 
Um, I think Brene Brown's pretty like well-known for, no- I think she's named her the shame gremlins. Yes. And so even that step, even that step is an incredibly helpful practice because it's getting it outside of you. So again, you can observe it a little bit more. Um, I think the, the self-compassion practice, like we've talked about is another really good tool. Um, if the self-compassion feels like way too far-fetched, something that can be helpful is, and this, I guess this is a bit of an embodiment experience, um, sort of practice, but something that can be helpful is to think of someone in your life who did provide a sense of unconditional love and support. And so, so often for my clients, it will be like a grandparent, right? And so we really, we picture putting that unconditional love and support from our grandma, right? I call my grandma, my Mima. So, <laughs> so I picture, you know, Mima's love for me. I, I literally, I don't know if this sounds crazy to some of you, but I literally picture putting it in the palm of my hand and then I bring it to my chest and then I put my other hand on my tummy and I just take some really deep breaths and I'm really just trying to take a second to embody what does it feel like to connect with Mima's love for me and breathing that in. And the beautiful mm. thing is that's helping to calm the nervous system and calm the body while you're doing this practice of bringing some love and kindness and gentleness in. So that is one practice that we could do daily. And I think um, it can be a little bit easier to that compassion to come from somewhere else first, mm. if that makes sense. Um, so that's yeah. a really nice practice. I think too, you could do this with journaling. You could do it with a coach. You could do it with a therapist, but taking a little bit of time to think about where have I attached my worth? Mm. So for lots of us in body image work, um, and I certainly know this was, this was true for me. I learned growing up in the South of America that my worth was based on how pretty or how small I could be. And So I really had to unpack that of, okay, so I've attached my worth and being good enough to my body. Some people, right? Like we go back to our family experience. Some people maybe were taught my worth is attached to my achievement and my education. So they will spin their wheels. They will get degrees that they hate. They will stay in a career that sucks the the life out of them. Um, And so it's really, like I said, doing a bit of journaling and, and again, being curious where have I attached my sense of worth? Um, and all of those are really nice practices. The last thing I'll say, which I hope is doable for your, you know, the listeners right now is connection, right? Like vulnerability is we're risking emotional exposure. So it can be, be very hard. But when we share our shame stories, that not good enough voice where our worth is attached, when we share that out loud with someone who meets us with empathy and compassion, the shame loses its power. And so for so many of us, we're walking around believing we're totally isolated in our experience. We're the only one who feels this way. And so often when you open up and you share it, you're met with me too. Me too. I feel that too. I think that too. And so that is, that is a way um, that that's almost the anecdote to this not good enough voice and shame is empathy 
compassion, and connection. So thinking, who are the safe people in my life that I could share this with? Is it my coach? Is it my therapist? Is it my best friend? Um, And for me, I have a dear friend who we just have this code where I can text message her and say, help, I'm in a shame spiral. This is the story I'm telling myself. Can you help me out? And even just sending the text message helps. Yeah, that's 50% of the work, like to put yourself out there. You don't have to say anything. Yes. Yes. Those were excellent tips. I just want to add something to this because I recently became aware of this for myself, for my own journey. I had to give myself permission to think that I was good enough. Like I couldn't even get past the, like I I thought of myself as like, if I think that I'm good enough, like who the hell am I to think that? I had to give myself the permission. Like I didn't realize that until recently. Yes. And it is. So shame plays two versions. One is not good enough, but the other one is who do you think you are? There you go. Who do you think you are to be compassionate to yourself? Who do you think you are to believe you're good enough? Who do you think you are to take that step in your business? That is the other tape that shame plays. And so I hope it's okay if I say this, but one of the skills that you taught that has helped me a lot is the idea of a thought ladder. And so creating, you know, creating, if it feels way too much to just walk around going, I'm good enough. I'm good enough. Right. Like for so many of us, that feels like BS that feels not true. So even starting with, it's possible to believe I'm good enough, even starting there. Yeah. And it's, and for me, I'll tell you this, I had to start like the step before that, like it's possible that my brain is lying to me when it's telling me that I'm not good enough. Like I had to go like that step far and then say, wow, look around me. There is women who actually think they're good enough. I had to accept that it was possible to other people. Yeah. To get me to think it was possible for me. Like this is how far I was behind the train. (laughs) But I love that approach because it is, it's a bridge. It's a bridge where we just take one step at a time. So sort of going, okay, my brain's lying to me. Okay. It's possible for other women to feel good enough in their now bodies in their, Mm -hmm. you know? And so I really like that because it's this bridge, you know, it's not trying too fast to jump to something and reciting something that our brain calls total BS on. Yeah. And it's, uh, it's funny because I was, I was talking with somebody just before this interview about how positive thinking is actually for some people dangerous because it throws them into what we call cognitive dissonance. And it's really harmful because the thought is way too far and it's traumatic for them. Yes. And I, I think that does tap into that whole idea of toxic positivity where, you know, and, and I've seen that suggested for body image work of, we'll just look in the mirror and say, I'm beautiful. And I mean, one, we are not objects to be fixed or beautified, right? So that's one thing. But the other thing is, is what you just said, it can almost be more traumatic because it's just repeating this message to ourselves. Like you said, that doesn't feel true. That feels distressing. And then I think people, again, can tap into a layer of shame. Well, 
what's wrong with me that I can't look in the mirror and tell myself I'm beautiful. Um, so, and, and I think that's the cost of toxic positivity and repeating those generic positive thoughts is that's one is we judge ourselves for not being able to get there. But two is I think then we're ignoring what's actually happening in our bodies and what we're actually feeling. I'll just say this. I, before doing what I do, if you roll back the clock five or six years ago, I was a victim of that toxic positivity and hope of accepting my body. And it actually triggered panic attack because I was experimenting exactly what you're describing. I'm like, what is wrong with me? I can't do this. Like I've been doing it for a month and I don't feel it and actually triggered panic attack because I thought like yet again, I'm failing at this. Yes. And I think there's a lot of women listening who can relate to that experience. And again, when you say you experienced that panic attack, to me, it's the shame that set in. And remember the shame activates that fight or flight response. And so it's this domino effect and, you know, yeah, that's why, you know, the, the concepts that you teach that, that I now teach body neutrality, that's the beauty of body neutrality is we're not pushing ourselves to get to some generic positive place. We're moving gently to a place of neutrality first and then to respect. And it's actually like, I hear you say that it actually works with you in the concept of psychology, where we're not triggering the brain into trauma almost. Yes. Like the whole concept of titration. Yes. And that means gradual steps. That means, you know, how can I step out of my comfort zone just a little bit and then regain a sense of safety? And then take another step and regain a sense of safety. Um, and that is the, that's necessary. And I don't even think that's necessary just if there's trauma. I think it's necessary for all of us in terms of our growth is taking gradual steps and then allowing ourselves to restabilize a bit. And I'll just throw this before we wrap up, but education is key into this. And I know that's how you approach it because If we don't understand that, we'll go back to the system that created the not good enough voice and we're not educated, we think something is wrong with this. But when we're educated to identify this is the system, this is this, this is this, it relieves us. Does that make sense? Yes. I I think you lose... Absolutely. You sort of start just a a feeling almost in your body of being lighter, the more you can unpack and realize this is not my voice, right? Like this does not belong to me. These stories have been conditioned to be there. Mm -hmm. Education is very powerful. Yeah. So let's wrap this up. That's what you do in your practice, but that's what you do in your program. So can you quickly tell people about your program and where they can find it? Yes. And the name of your podcast, please, too, because she has a podcast now. <laughs> yes. yes. And talk about imposter syndrome. That was there when that started. Yes. But yes. So where you can find me is Green Life Psychology on Facebook and Instagram and on a website, greenlifepsychology.com. My podcast is called the Body and Food Freedom Podcast. 
And then the group that I'm so passionate about facilitating is a 16 week group for women uh, where we dive deeper into what we've talked about, shame, self-compassion, body image, healing, and then intuitive eating. Um, and so if you go to the, to my Instagram, the link in the bio, there's a place where you can learn more about my group program. You could book a discovery call. And something that I love that I learned from you is we are not bro marketers. So, <laughs> so if you bro marketer is a whole other podcast, <laughs> it basically means if you're curious about working with me or you're curious about my group program, you can book in that call and you're not going to be pressured and you're not going to get sleazy sales pitches. It's just a way to get to know me and talk about would this be a good match for you? So yeah, and then yeah, then my free guide is also up there, like I mentioned earlier on Instagram. Perfect. Vanessa is your feel not good enough expert. I mean, we could go into more trauma and all of that, but like feel not good enough, she's your expert. And that's why I wanted to bring her onto the podcast to really um, get people to connect with you if that's the thing that you think is holding back, like that's your expertise and that you're doing a wonderful job with that thank you thank you for coming on the show beyond ready to shed thy culture from your life and become the expert at your own body awesome then you need to join on diet your life program go to stephaniedozier.com forward slash join and join us now Undiet Your Life is the first program of its kind with the unique combination of mindset, life coaching with intuitive eating and body image. Find your freedom, reclaim your power and take control of your time so you can refocus on what really matter to you. Join Undiet Your Life at stephaniedoze.com forward slash join and I'll see you on the other side.